Hi, my name is Jim Casson. I am a drummer in Canada, and you are listening to Talking Blues. I, I want to start by saying happy anniversary. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 25 yes. years. Yeah, 25 years. Well, 25 years since uh, since we put the hardware on our fingers. Yeah, uh, I think we figured it was 28 since we've been together now. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a nice accomplishment. It's a huge accomplishment. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy, is the way I look at it. Either she's a gem or a fool uh, to stay with me, and I'm gonna go with gem. I will agree to that. That sounds good to me. Um, the other thing I know about you, I don't know much about it, is that do you have a farm? You work on a farm? You live on a farm? Which one is it? Well, uh, yes, to all three, kind of. Um, uh, about 20 years ago, just before my son was born, um, we decided to make the move out of Toronto uh, back to uh, my grandparents' farm uh, in uh, the middle of Niagara, a little town called Fenwick. Uh, I grew up just down the street from there. And the, the, the farmhouse was, uh, had, been, had been rented out by my mother and my aunt um, to, uh, for a few years after my grandparents had passed on. And it had come to the point where it was available and we had agreed that it was a, it would be a good choice for a place to raise kids. Even though my wife was a city girl, she's a, she grew up down at uh, Royal York and, and Lakeshore. Um, so the transition was a little interesting for her, but uh, so it is a, um, it's the family business. Um, my aunt and I uh, operate it together. It's a cherry farm. Um, so no livestock or anything like that. It's all, cherries and a couple other you know assorted fruit trees but it's the main crop is, is cherries and that's the uh that's that's how that works it's it's something that i am learning the business of slowly my aunt's got 20 years on me and she still keeps working but she keeps still keeps teaching me uh all the stuff i need to know and uh yeah so it's i i can't say it's a an insurance policy for being a musician because very often <laughs> I do better as a musician than we do on the farm, but that's the nature of that business. Because farming is tough, correct? Like it, I, it, I, just, I mean, there's so many variables that you have to depend on that things can change so quickly. Ab absolutely, and we've seen um, uh, all the sides of that in the last few years. We've had uh, years with it where a hailstorm would come uh, in early June and wipe the crop right out. And uh, uh, so, I mean, you have insurance for stuff like that, and you, you try to you, you figure it out. And it, but the price always varies, and you never really know what you're going to get paid until sometimes after you've made the harvest and you've already invested all the money into all the uh, the, the pre-harvest things, the sprays and the, uh, and, and the, the, the labor and everything. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a crapshoot. My, my musician <laughs> friends always say, Oh, it's so great that you've got that to fall back on. I said, you think being a musician is a gamble. Try being a farmer. You know, it's crazy, but. Wow. Um, so this isn't something you grew up with. It, I did. It was my grandfather's farm, and my mother and my aunt grew up in this house, and uh, I grew up just down the street. So I spent every summer, my only other job other than being a musician has been uh, working on the farm. Uh, so all my high school years, um, I was my grandfather's primary laborer. 
Um, so yeah, I did. I, I did grow up with it. Okay, so being a musician, I know you started playing. I, I know that music came into your life through the piano initially, and then you became a drummer. Tell me yeah. about. I get the impression the piano wasn't your your love. <laughs> Well, I mean, as as most kids do, uh, and this would be back in the mid seventies, um, and my mother was a piano player. We had a piano in the in in the house. Oh, well, she wasn't a piano player, but she played piano, um, and. Uh, uh, so we had the piano in the house, and we all, everybody had to take piano lessons. That was just, that was just what you did. And um, so I, I took them, and I hated them. I just really, you know, they were, they were just not what I liked. And I got to about the grade three conservatory, and, um, and what happened is, um, I guess we were about, I guess I was in about grade four, Five or grade, maybe grade six. I was in grade six, and they had a talent show at the uh, at the public school, and so there was another guy in my class who played guitar, and so we said, "Hey, we should put together a band." And so I, I said, "Okay, great." And I was going to play piano, and he's playing guitar, and uh, my cousin, who was quite a bit older than me, had an old drum kit. And so we talked to one of the cool kids in class, you know, like it was just a cool kid. And so well, he's a cool kid. He must be able to play drums or he could figure that out. So we got the drum set and the cool kid was going to come and play drums. Um, well, the cool kid never showed up. And uh, so we ended up doing it and we, and we played Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, and I played one finger piano melody. Uh, and, and the guitarist played, the, played the, uh, the chords and the accompaniment. And... We slayed the room. The, the, everybody else was doing like Celtic dancing and or you know <laughs> or knot tying or some you know that was their talent. And we go up and we play like a current song, and the place went crazy. So it was it was really fun. It kind of the bug was set there, but this drum set was sitting in my living room, and so I started messing around on it. And my mother, in her infinite wisdom. Uh, says to me one day, would you like to take drum lessons instead of taking piano lessons? And the answer was, yes, immediately, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be way cooler. And and so that's how that happened. And and like I say, the rest is hearing damage from that point on. But uh, um, yeah, that's, that's where the transition from piano uh, to drums. Although when I got to Mohawk College, everybody who was a non-piano player had to take a basic keyboard course. So that the piano has basically become the keyboard has become my my alternate instrument that's what i compose on that's what i i um uh, i arrange on uh and 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 do stuff like that but i do have the recurring uh stress nightmare where um uh, i i i am dreaming and i get to the gig only to find out that i'm the piano player on the gig that night <laughs> and that's terrifying because I, I could, there's no way I could ever perform on a piano, but uh, I can get away with it in the studio or in privacy of my own home. So for composition, you can write things using the piano. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I was uh, uh, a composition and arranging major in college, and uh, so everything was based on on keyboard. Um, and so I understand, you know, everything, how the chord progressions work and how the voicings work and, and, and I can work out melodies and stuff like that. Just don't ask me to perform. You know, I, I can write, I can work out bits and pieces in the studio, 
but don't put me on stage with it because I will probably die. <laughs> so tell me about from that one gig, and that was your first gig, I presume. The 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 Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds talent show. Yes, yes, that was the first time. So then you pick up the drums, and do the drums come easy to you? Um, well, they kind of. I, I kind of got an idea of how to do it. I mean, I was I was playing around and I kind of would hear stuff, but I like I say I got to a, a drum teacher fairly quickly, and um, so he corrected all the mistakes out. Like I had the drums set up completely wrong. I had no idea how they were supposed to be. Everything was in the wrong place, and um, so he corrected me. He was a local guy, and he was a young. He was a um, a, a, a jazz drummer who, who, but his main gig was playing in Walter Ostinak's polka band. And uh, so he was on the TV. They had they had polka time on Channel 13 out of Kitchener, and and every Sunday night I could see him playing playing drums on polka time. And his name was Bob Secord, and and he taught me for about a year, I guess. And I guess I did figure it out pretty quickly because we did a lot of stuff in that year, and then and then I went kind of into like senior public school, high school. And I just played. And I didn't go back to Bob until uh, the end of high school when I wanted to prepare for uh, my audition to go to Mohawk College. Okay, so what made you decide that you wanted to pursue music at Mohawk College? And by this time, are you playing in a lot of rock bands and you're thinking, this is what I want to do? No, actually, uh, most of the stuff I was playing was the high school bands. I was playing in the jazz band. I was playing in the marching band, the concert band, all these things like that. Uh, I was winning the drum awards at high school. Uh, It was something I could do, and I liked it, and I hated farming, and farming was my other (laughs) option. Uh, My grandfather had said to me, uh, since I was the male grandson and the only, you know, uh, that I could, the farm was mine if I wanted to run it. I was just, you know, terrified of that option. You know, I, I, when we did the school tours out of high school, I went to Mohawk in Hamilton, or Mohawk and Hamilton to the music program, Humber in Toronto to the music program, and Guelph uh, for the agricultural program, for the tours. And the, uh, the, the, the concept of, of doing agriculture just was, uh, I, I wanted to go play. I wanted to make music. I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to do all those things that teenagers <laughs> wanted to do, but I did not want to sit on a tractor the rest of my life. And and now here you are. That's changed now because 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 now it's a, it's quite a nice relaxing escape, and I find I do an awful lot of really good composing out on the tractor <laughs> if I can remember the song by the time I get home. You should have like a recording device on your tractor. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I should I should do that. I yeah, I used to just kept singing the melody line until I got back. To home and find a piano and I could write it down but yeah yeah I know I have a phone I have an iPhone so I can do it now I can just you know yeah, yeah that's click true. it and there you go um I wonder when you decide to go to Mohawk and I know that the choice was not going to go go work on the farm but but did you have an idea what that what you were hoping to achieve out of going to Mohawk um it just seemed to be the place uh, between Mohawk and Humber um, that was where you went if you were studying jazz, which I kind of was. I was I was into that. That's you know, grew up as a prog rock kid, which led to you know you know uh, fusion jazz, which led to more traditional jazz and big band stuff. And that seemed to be the place. And and it was like 
I had always felt I needed to, it was kind of my responsibility to go to a post-secondary thing. That was, I wasn't like I was going to finish high school and get in a bar band and go to the road. Uh, I, I wanted to do something post-secondary to kind of validate everything. And it was, I mean, and I chose Mohawk over Humber, well, for two reasons. First of all, I didn't get into Humber, so that was easy. But uh, um, but uh, Mohawk, uh, being a small town Niagara kid, um, the premise of going to Toronto was terrifying. Um, the going to Hamilton was a little easier to swallow, and uh, it was closer, and it was a smaller town, and um, and it was it was the best decision I made. Uh, the, the Mohawk experience was, um, was, was great. It taught me, uh, well, first of all, I came from high school where I was the big fish, you know, I, I, I was the guy and I got to Mohawk and I was at the bottom of the totem pole. And, uh, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a great experience because it, it taught me to, to learn better. It taught me to, uh, um, understand so much more about music, the, the writing, the composition sort of stuff like that, which was major at that point. Um, but it also taught me to network and to, uh, to, to, to work with other musicians and, and, uh, get, get, uh, get, get to know them. And, and I mean, that's really how you get work. It's not, it's not necessarily how good you are. It's who, you know, and, right. uh, and, and the relationships you build all along the way that, uh, that really help uh, you know, further your career. But if I was to ask you what you'd hoped to achieve when you came out of Mohawk, did okay. you want to be a composer or did I you wanted, want to play live? I wanted to be a studio musician. I wanted to be the studio drummer. Um, the guys like, you know, Steve Gadd and, and, and Jeff Picaro, and, and that was the guy I wanted to be. I wanted to be the chameleon and be able to play all these different styles and be the guy on all these records. The biggest problem that happened is that was 1986. And right around the same time, the drum machine showed up. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the way that you progressed as a studio musician is you started out playing on people's demos and then you get into playing jingles and then you start to get to, you know, get some album calls and, and you work your way up like that. Well, what happened is the drum machine showed up and the demos and the jingles disappeared. Nobody needed to hire a drummer for their demo because they could just program the good old Yamaha RX-5 or the Lindrum and get the part they wanted. And the same with the jingle scene. So the, so the studio scene completely disappeared as I was graduating. And I was like, oh, no. So I, I had to, I had to re, uh, re-examine how, what, I, what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. So I know that you went on the road with a Pink Floyd tribute band. Mm-hmm. Was that part of the re-examination or was that just a, an opportunity that presented itself? It, it was absolutely an opportunity. Um, it was my last year of, of, of college and uh, a friend of mine who was at school with me, a guitarist named Kevin Briggs, had got this gig with this band called Clear Light. And at the time, they were um, a pretty big deal. They, it, it was the beginning of the, the very beginning of the tribute thing. So they're kind of, with them and the Blushing Brides, are kind of recognized as like the first of those tribute bands. Um, and and uh, Kevin had the gig and the drummer was leaving. And Kevin knew me from Mohawk. 
and here's the beginning of the networking. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, hey, we should get Jim. And so I went and auditioned and uh, uh, got the gig. And the trick was they said um, I didn't, they didn't need me until, until I was going to be finished my school year. The drummer was going to stay on. And I was like, okay, great, because I can, my last year, I, you know, I want to get my piece of paper. And, uh, and then the drummer suddenly decided, no, I'm out of here. And they called me and said, uh, with, with like a, a month and a half to go in the school year, uh, we need you now. And I was torn. I was like, well, I, I, want to, I want to finish college. And all my friends said, are you nuts? You know, you got a gig. You win. This is, this is, this is why we're here. We're here to get a gig. <laughs> And you got one, and it's a good one. You're going to tour all over North America with this band. This is great. So uh, it was it was actually really good because the college kind of bent over backwards to help me uh, finish. I didn't have to go the last six weeks of sc- weeks of school. I didn't go uh, to college. I was out on the road, but um, they allowed me to uh, when I got back into town, hand in all the assignments that uh, were needed. So I'm out in a, I'm in a bar in Quebec, you know, writing out big band charts and, 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 and doing, you know, all sorts of, you know, <laughs> essays and stuff like that. Um, but, and then showing up on Monday morning and handing stuff in and getting the next round of assignments. So the, the college was really great because they, they really, they recognized the fact that I had got a gig, you know, and that's to me or to them, that's like, that's their goal. Get make a working musician right. out of these people, and so they they, uh, they 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 let me skip out the last six weeks, and I got my diploma, and uh, so uh, that that's kind of how that happened. So the, yeah, the Clearlight thing was definitely a, um, uh, an opportunity, um, and uh, I mean that was what you did. You 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 grabbed it, you got a gig, and you you ran with it. I wonder how much road experience you had up until that point. Zero. Absolutely zero. Uh, I hadn't done a professional gig until my second year of college, uh, where the drummer who was ahead of me uh, says to me, hey man, you want a gig? And I'm like, sure. And so it was with this lounge singer in Hamilton named David Sebastian Bach. And and yes, he claims lineage. He might even, he's on my Facebook, he might actually, you know, end up hearing this. So so David, uh, we, we had this this gig and we were playing every weekend in the lounges around Hamilton, wearing a tuxedo, playing, you know, uh, the, the, the lounge hits of the early 1980s. And, um, it was, that was, that was my gig experience before I went on the road with uh, Clearlight. So when, when Clearlight happened, it was definitely an eye opening experience <laughs> to say the least. But before we, we go to the, the road experience, tell me about playing in that lounge act and and to getting weekly gigs. How did you feel about that? Did you think, oh my God, this is where I belong. This is home. This is what I want to do. No, not with not with that. No, not at all. It was a uh, it was a gig. It was kind of like a responsibility. You know, you 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 got a chance to do to to play, and you you did. I mean, there were some moments that were fun, but a lot of it was you know uh, at the time. I mean, I was what I was twenty two twenty. No, I was twenty, uh, and you know, I I wanted to be anywhere but wearing a tuxedo playing you know the green green grass of home. <laughs> Um, but that's what that, and, and, you know, I was getting some money. I wasn't getting a lot of money. I wasn't, I was actually, I wasn't making very much money at all, but I was making some money as a, as a student. And, uh, so, it, I mean, it was a really good experience. It taught me a lot. It taught me a lot of how to, you know, uh, to, to deal with, uh, with, with people and, uh, to endure, 
uh, some things that you may not enjoy at the time, but uh, and it was it was it was good because of because of all that. But it, I I don't think I ever felt like yeah this is where I want to be because it was like no I want to be somewhere else doing this but not here. <laughs> this <laughs> okay. So now you're on the road. Yes. What is that like for a young kid who's never been on the road before? Uh, it was extremely eye-opening. Um, this band, uh, it, it was a pretty big band uh, as far as um, their draw at the time. And we would, we would travel uh, mostly Ontario, Quebec, out to the Maritimes. Uh, but most of the stuff we did was in the States because the, uh, the, the management was out of Chicago. So there was a lot of, of traveling down in the States and that was really interesting. I mean, I mean, like, first of all, yes, the, the, the first thing that happened, I remember they had a huge 24-foot box truck, and I hadn't seen their full show yet. And this was a Pink Floyd show. So the, the production was more important than the music. You know, the, the, like the light man was a founding member of the band. Uh, like he, he was there from the beginning. He was more important than me. Um, and uh, so I had never seen their full production until we, uh, you know, we had done a rehearsal and got everything together. And I took my drums and I put it into the back of this truck. And I couldn't really see it because there's so much stuff in the truck. And we drive to Hull, Quebec and play a, a biker bar called uh, um, Le Papillon. And, uh, uh, it, uh, and they start bringing the stuff out of the back of the truck and it never stops you know the 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 pa is huge i've never seen anything like this it was a big double martin pa it was enormous the light show they had over a hundred thousand watt power cans of lights on truss and big you know super lifts and so and i just kept looking like oh my God, what the heck is this? And it was it was pretty amazing. You know, they had smoke machines and strobe lights and fluorescent you know, black lights, and it was a real production. But I didn't actually see the production until I was on the stage. Uh, so that was that was a bit a bit mind blowing. But uh, uh, it was uh, it was it was really it was good. I mean, and and traveling in the states um, was was pretty cool at that time because American clubs at that time versus Canadian clubs. It, it was always a big event when we showed up at uh, these American bars uh, and people were very excited and, um, and, and it was big clubs. Like, you know, uh, we were playing to what there's a, there's a club in Cleveland, uh, called Spanky's and it was, it was like 1600 people, um, uh, in this, this giant room and, and it was packed and this bar was, this band was very popular in that club. So it was, um, it, it was a pretty eye-opening experience. It kind of kind of jumped right into the deep end as far as high-end bar bands go, and uh, it was uh, it was it was quite an experience. Even though sometimes, you know, we I remember we got down to we were playing in San Antonio, Texas, and um, first time the band had ever been there. And like I say, this is the beginning of the whole tribute thing, so not everybody really understood what exactly was going on. And so we do our sound check in the afternoon and we're sitting outside, uh, soaking up the Texas sun. And, uh, these two guys come by in a pickup truck and, 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 uh, they come up to the club and they, they see us there and they start talking to us. And they said, yeah, man, are you guys here for the, for the big Pink Floyd show? 
And uh, we said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're here for the, the, the Pink Floyd show. He said, man, that's going to be awesome, man. I'm telling you. It was, it got, it's, it's got a 12,000-watt stereo sound system and 100,000 watts of lights. It's going to be awesome. And we said, well, yeah, yeah, no. He said, well, you guys don't, don't sound like you're from around here. Where are you from? Well, we're from Canada. We're the band. And the, what band? We're, we're the band tonight. <laughs> what do you mean, band? They thought it was like Laser Floyd. You know, it was going to be lights and they're going to oh. play Dark Side of the Moon. They had no clue that it was a, it was a live performance. So you, you got stuff like that once in a while, which was, which was kind, of, uh, kind of amusing. So uh, is there any room for improvisation? Or are we talking like everything has to be exactly like the record? Well, that became a bit of a sticking point in that band. Because um, you had, uh, the band had been around, I was like drummer number eight in that band. The band had been around for probably about eight or nine years, I guess, and had done very well and started off as just a bunch of guys who played Pink Floyd music in their basement. Not None, none of them were, you know, school-educated guys. They were just guys and uh, and, and got really good at it. Um, and then they started, you know, guys would fall off. You know, guys would like, you know, I can't do this anymore. And so uh, people get replaced. And so when you replace those guys... The better the band is, the higher caliber musician you end up getting. So they started, when they got this uh, guitar player from uh, who was a, a college guy, um, that was a big deal. He, he was a really great guitar player. And, uh, and then he brought in me. Uh, and at the same time, the keyboard player got replaced. So we brought in another guy from the college. So suddenly now, of the five-piece band, three of us are college guys, jazz college guys, who think we know everything. Who think we're so smart? You know, we we're educated. We know what we're talking about. You should listen to us. You know, and 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 so we started to kind of sway things a little bit, and so there was some there were some liberties taken, and um, and 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 it didn't go unnoticed, uh, and sometimes not very well appreciated. Uh, management came down on us a few times that. You know, we weren't playing accurately, which, of course, at, as, at 21, we all said, you don't know what you're talking about. We're smart, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so that happened. And I, and I specifically remember that, that, that big club in Cleveland. We had played to, like, you know, 1,600 people. It was huge, and people went nuts. And we're sitting back in the dressing room after the show, and this guy comes and knocks on the door. And he goes, man... I just wanted to tell you, and we you know, let him in, and he said, yeah, I just wanted to tell you about your show tonight. He said, that was really awful. I mean, you guys just, you know, destroyed what was supposed to be, you know, classic stuff. You know, what's wrong with you? And it was like, we were really taken aback because we had just killed this this huge room of, uh, and everybody was screaming, and this guy was telling us, yeah, you kind of sucked. Um, so it, it did kind of come back to, to, to bite um the bite us a bit because because we were taking liberties and you know that's one of those first lessons you know uh that sometimes you should be playing if you're playing in a tribute show you should be playing it like the songs because that's what people are paying to see they're not coming to see your great jazz interpretation of what money would have sounded like if it was played (laughs) by a bunch of jazz fusion heads um so yeah it uh during my run with the band, there was probably more improvisation than should have been. But uh, um, 
so, but it was a good lesson learned. So, I don't know if things have changed, but how do you view tribute bands? Because it's something that I'm, I have, I am a little conflicted by. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not to say I don't like them, because I think I understand that there's certain bands you're never going to be able to see, and having a great tribute band is the closest thing to it. And I see the benefits of that. But what, how do you view tribute bands? Um, f- first of all, it's it's a it's a good way to still make money playing music uh, at 57 years old. Um, so uh, there, there's one thing I do a lot of uh, uh, well pre-COVID. Uh, and hopefully soon again, uh, I work with a lot of shows that are theater shows that are essentially tribute acts, you know, Beach Boys show or Eagles show or right. you know, various type of shows like that. And um, what I understand now is the pleasure the audience gets. It's not so much you're playing for yourself, which is what you did when you were 21 and, uh, you know, you knew everything. Uh, but it's it's playing for the audience, and it's executing those pieces um, night after night, uh, uh, and 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 playing them correctly. That's a, a real challenge uh, to to for someone who's a jazz blues guy to suddenly have to duplicate things every night because we usually just you know <laughs> let people we just make stuff up and everyone thinks it's great, but. The idea is that no, you have to duplicate it. That's why I always say that rock musicians are very much like classical musicians; they're the same breed because they they, ex- they rehearse, they they practice, they execute the part perfectly every night. And uh, and and we're like unlike blues and jazz guys who just go up and baffle them with their brilliance. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, both both aspects are are very valid, and and it's been good for me to learn to be that other musician learn to be the guy uh who can play the part and uh because they're they're two different animals uh so but mostly it's because the the value of a tribute act is to bring the joy to the audience the people that love this music um that there there's a reason these bands are are that popular because they wrote great songs and those songs affected people's lives and it takes them back to a time when they were young and virile and, and, and healthy and their bodies felt good and they kind of suddenly go back in time for that you know brief period of your concert and they walk away feeling good again. Makes sense. Then the next morning they wake up and, and, they, and they, they hurt all over again. But, you know. It's... <laughs> That's an age thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so do you still look at yourself as a jazz and blues guy? Uh... No, I look at myself as a musician. I, I, I like to. I, 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 I think I've kind of achieved that chameleon uh, status I wanted to be when I started going to Mohawk. I wanted to be that I can play everything sort of thing, or or, or it can fit into whatever you ask me to play. Um, I don't. I know too many really great jazz musicians to call myself a jazz musician. Uh, because because being a jazz musician is not just the ability to play jazz; it's a lifelong commitment to an art form. And I've I, I learned the basics. I learned how to get around. I can fool people. I can get around it and make it, you know, seem, you know, certain seem seem appropriate. But I don't ever consider myself a jazz guy. Um, I. Yeah, I kind of try to think of myself as just an all-around musician, and that's one of the reasons I've been uh, last 
several years have been doing some of these other gigs that are completely outside of the blues jazz category to kind of learn that stuff like doing stuff with classic albums live uh doing some of these uh these these theater shows where it requires the discipline to duplicate the parts perfectly um that's a real challenge for me and i you know when i do a classic albums live show i practice more than i've ever practiced uh to get those shows right um because i know that's where it starts the the the, this, this, the starting point for those shows is perfection and then it goes up from there uh so it's a, that's that's the challenge so yeah i don't i get a lot of blues gigs i do some music that's improvisational um but i don't necessarily call myself a specific jazz or blues guy that's where my roots are i'll say that okay so if you're playing you know when people talk about that magic moment on stage where things just feel like they just float mm-hmm. if you're in a band where you, you where you have to execute note by note how you're replicating how the album sounds. Do you still have that option of reaching that special place? I think so. When uh, I know, um, for example, we do a, a Beach Boy show, and um, the uh, the song uh, uh, "Good Vibrations" is uh, a very involved song. You you you. A lot of musicians, you know, think of Beach Boys, you're like, yeah, okay, it's just, you know, surf music. Check out what's going on in, in Good Vibrations and the uh, intricacy of the arrangement and, and having all these parts and all those vocals going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, and when we have that, when we do that show, uh, that song's at the, towards the end of the night, and we got to the point and, and at one point we were going to use tracks to back up stuff to, to add to the music and it was decided early on that that wasn't the way to go that we had enough really good musicians and really good singers that we could do this so when we finish good vibrations and it's right yeah that total buzz is there there's a there's a there's a whole uplifting uh feeling that kind of that's very similar to having that magical moment in an improvisational jammy sort of thing. It's just like this feeling of accomplishment and like, wow, okay, that actually sounded pretty good. That, that sounded pretty close to it. And then the audience goes nuts because it was pretty good. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, you get that adulation from the audience. And, and so I'll say, yes, you, you do. You, it's a different, it's a different moment than, uh, than that, that let it go free thing. Uh, but it's very similar as well. Okay, so when I look at your discography, you have you've been on a ridiculous amount of albums of various genres and different mm. artists. Mm. Where's home to you, like musically, or is it just what you're doing at that moment? Um, interesting. Where's home musically? Like I say, I've always tried to be the chameleon, so trying to sound like. My goal is when I play a style of music, I want you to think that I've never played another style of music ever in my life, uh, that I've always just played that. You know, If it's a rock song, I want to sound like a rock guy. If it's a blues song, I want to sound like I've only shuffled my entire life. Um, so where is home? Uh, I mean, you get various levels of comfort. Um, music that you're a fan of, uh, I, I, I love I, I, I love rootsy R&B, uh, uh, New Orleans style music. Um, 
I, I still, I don't think I'm, you know, uh, I, I think I can get away with playing New Orleans style music until I go and see guys from New Orleans play it. And then I go, okay, <laughs> I got a little more work to do. But uh, um, that sort of thing, that rootsy, bluesy thing, I, and part of that is because I've done so much of that. So maybe that's kind of developed itself as, as being a, a comfortable home base. I wonder, so you tour with this Pink Floyd tribute band. At what point, and I know the music world has changed a great deal, but at what point do you expand and say, I'm going to be working on more than one project? I'm going to be in more than one band. How does that, is that just a necessity thing or how does that happen? Because I look at your gig list, you know, even in the last month, and you've played with a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, well, the Pink Floyd thing was a, a better paying gig showed up. Um, it was as simple as that. Uh, I, I'm playing along, and this local band in Niagara called Jeffrey and the Juniors, which was a 50s show band, but they, you know, we were making 250 bucks a week with the Pink Floyd band, which was pretty good because I had a lot of friends of mine who were making 100 bucks a week. And then Jeffrey and the Juniors showed up, and they said, okay, we'll pay you 150 bucks a show, and we do six to eight shows a week. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Um, and so that was, you know, suddenly that was, I was making money and, uh, and it was, it was pretty good. So uh, the, doing more gigs, different styles of music, it, to me, it all, it, it was opportunities. It was when it, there was no conscious decision saying I need to, you know, uh, I, I want to be more, play more blues gigs. I want to play more jazz gigs. I want to play more rock gigs. It was just, who's calling? What, the phone rang. What do you want me to do? Okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm there. I'm do that. If, heavy metal band. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it's, and, and so by doing all those things, you start to develop a bit of a reputation to be able to do those things. And so you start getting more calls like that. And it's just, it mushrooms. That's, that's really where that comes from. And, and so the luxury of, of having variety in my musical life is something that has taken me 35 years to, you know, to get to. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, I don't think it was ever a, a conscious decision. There's a few times where I said, I need to take this gig because this will be good for me uh, musically. Can you give me an example of that? Uh, yeah, the band, uh, after I got fired from Jeffrey and the Juniors because I was playing too jazzy and, 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 and you know, too smart and I wasn't playing the music properly, um, I was totally unemployed, sitting in my mother's house, uh, looking at the, you know, uh, the Toronto Star want ads, uh, section 465, dramatic musical talent needed. Uh, they, they had the want ads and got this, uh, uh, found this ad and answered it. And I took this, this gig um, with a disco MIDI uh, show band that was playing in B and C circuit bars around Canada and uh, but the, the 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 trick was the whole thing was done to a drum machine everything was there were sequencers there was all this stuff and i said to myself this will be really good for helping establish my time my meter well i have to play to a machine every night and my my time will will solidify and so i did oh i don't know six eight months of that and that was um you know, other than the fact that, you know, I had no work, so I took whatever I could, but then my logic was that this was going to help me uh, improve as a musician do, for just for that aspect of it, for, for my time and my meter. 
what would you said would have been a big break for you? Like, I, I can tell you exactly. Um, uh, Joe Mavidi. Joe Mavidi. I don't know if you remember Joe, a guitar, a blues rock guitarist in Toronto. Um, and uh, I had quit. I had quit the, 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 the disco midi band. And I was slumming at my girlfriend, who was a singer in that band. We both quit together. Slumming at her mother's condo in Thornhill. And I'm trying to get work. And uh, so again, I'm on. I'm talking to all the agencies because I had this. I had this Pink Floyd band uh, resume point that I could kind of flaunt and say, you know, I was in this band. You know, any bands you uh, you could look at. And so I heard that the Blushing Brides were looking for a drummer. And uh, so I call up the agency who I'd already had a dialogue with one of the agents there. And I say, listen, I hear, I hear the brides are looking for a drummer. I'd like to audition. They say, oh, it's, it's been filled. You know, they've, they've got a guy. And I was like, oh, okay, well, thanks very much. They said, well, listen, I got this phone call from this guy um, looking for a drummer to go to Quebec City next weekend. Uh, his name is Joe Mavidi. Do you know him? I, no, I don't know. I said, well, here's his number. Give him a call. So I, I call up Joe, and I just say, hi, looking, I'm, my name's Jim. I got your number from this guy at the agency. Uh, he says, you're looking for a drummer to go to Quebec City next week. And Joe goes, yeah, are you available? And I said, yes, I am. He said, okay, you're hired. <laughs> and, you know, he'd never even heard me play. He'd never heard nothing. And Joe hired me stone cold off the phone. And off we went to Quebec City. And we played this bluesy, Hendrixy type of rock stuff. And Joe, Joe's started everything. Joe then says to me after a few gigs, he says, listen, you got to meet my friend, Michael, Michael Fonferra. Uh, Michael's going to love your drumming. Oh, okay. And I have no idea, no idea who Michael Fonferra is. And, and so Michael comes in and plays and Michael's, Michael's pretty impressive. Oh, this guy can, this guy can kind of play. Uh, and, and, and Michael becomes enamored with my playing. And then Michael puts me uh, on this gig with Chris Kenny in Port Credit, at a little bar um, uh, oh, called the Tiffany Cafe. And it was a Tuesday night, uh, a Tuesday night house gig. Uh, Uli Bonnet, Brian Gossi, and myself and Chris Kenny. And it was a different, they'd have a guest every week. And we got 30 bucks each. Uh, and apparently all the booze you could drink, but I wasn't you know, going nuts on that. And I think the guest got 50. Well, it was a Tuesday in Port Credit. And everybody was looking for work. So the guests were like Chuck Jackson, Rita Shirelli, Tony Flame, you know, all these blues greats that had not quite established their blues greatness yet, but they were, they were the, they were the people. And I met all these people and I look back and I said, I can count, I can, I can trace every gig I've ever had from that point back to a connection that happened at that gig that Joe Mavidi recommended me for with Michael Fonferra. And, and, and so that's, yeah, that was my break was this, this $30 gig in Port Credit on a Tuesday night. And I presume that eventually got you onto joining Downchild. Uh, eventually it, it led to Chuck's, uh, Chuck Jackson's all-star band. Um, and, uh, so, and that was, that went for, for quite a while. And, uh, uh, the first, the Downchild gig actually came up 
while I was in that band and I kind of had an impromptu audition where the whole band showed up at the chicken deli when we were playing. Cause half the band, half a down child was in Chuck's all-star band. And, uh, so the rest of the guys got up and played uh, except for the drummer. They made me sit down and play a few songs. And so I, I played and it was fine. Uh, and then Donnie talks to me uh, later they had hired, they ended up hiring Tyler Burgess to, to be the drummer. And, and Donnie comes up to me and says, you know, and Donnie didn't even say like I was up for the gig. Nobody, nobody even mentioned it. <laughs> and he just says, yeah, I, to be a drummer in Downchild, you gotta, you gotta kind of be, you gotta be a blues guy, you know, just a blues guy. That's why you, you gotta be a blues guy. And I, I, you know, I was here playing all this, you know, this different, you know, horn band like Chicago and, you know, uh, and all the jazz funk stuff we were doing with, with the all-stars. And so I didn't really fit the mold at that point. And um, so that, uh, so I didn't get the gig. And then a few years down the road, Tyler leaves the band. And uh, I can't remember the circumstance. There was, some, there was a few other things that, that a few of the guys that went in and out shortly, briefly, uh, but they were stuck. And, and so I was playing with Chuck and Pat and Michael. And they said, you know, they convinced Donnie to, to, to give me a shot for the gig. And so we went to Montreal and no rehearsal. Uh, they just gave me the, the songs to learn. And I wrote down my cheat sheet and, uh, we did the gig and I nailed it. And Donnie comes up to me after the gig and says, you want the gig? I said, sure. So that's, that's where that happened. Uh, (laughs) And you know you nailed it. You knew that yeah. night, that moment. Yeah, that I, I, I was. Nailed. I mean, and that was, and that was, you know, like I say, that was part of my goal, my longtime goal, is I wanted to. If you heard me play on that uh, on a certain gig, I wanted to sound like I'd never played another style of music in my life. And I, I did my homework, and I, uh, uh, and I, and I knew half the band. I had a, had a very good rela- working relationship with with half the guys in the band. So uh, there was a comfort zone there that uh, that wasn't a, a real issue, and yeah, I just I I, I did my homework and and uh, and and did the played the show properly, and and Donnie was pleased, and and that's when he offered me the show for that. But I can't imagine that being easy because Downchild, unlike most bands, have a show. Mm-hmm. It's not just songs that they call out. It's mm-hmm. it's a show from beginning to end, and it has its moments. So you knew all that. Well, and that's that's part of the thing. You know, they gave me the set list. They gave me the songs. And they said, you know, here's, how we, here's how it goes. And so it's actually, you know, learning a show like that is kind of easier because you can actually write the whole thing out. You know, if, if there's things that kind of happen off the cuff, you know, and you're still expected to be, you know, perfect, it's a lot tougher because it's out of order, it's out of sequence. And, but when you're, when you're learning a show like that... Um, yeah, it's a, a little easier when it's when it's that well organized and uh, and and Downchild songs aren't straight up blues tunes, you know. Like you know, you know, most a lot of blues bands are, you know, the same formula every night, every song, and 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 Downchild has a lot of a lot of stuff like that. But we always said there's there's always the Downchild trick. There's a there's a twist. Something you know, an extra half bar here, or an extra bar here, or uh, you, you just just things that happen that are that are down child things, and uh, um, but since I was learning the songs, that became evident. And I had, you know, I I, I was familiar with down child to an extent, 
You know, I was a, I was a Blues Brothers fan, so that was that was kind of my introduction to blues was uh, that and that and the uh, KTL Sound Explosion uh, record that uh, Flip Flop and Fly was on that I had when I was maybe you know fourteen. Okay, so I have to ask, and I hope you don't mind. And I can only ask, I'm only asking because you, you're back in Downchild. But what was it? What happened that you left or? You were no longer. I, I was. I was fired. I was straight up. I, I was straight up fired. In fact, I was fired twice. Uh, only the second one took. Um, and <laughs> again, it's part of that youthful thing where you know you think you know everything, and you're. And, and I was at that point in my life where I was, you know, a bit of a pain in the butt, and uh, uh, and and I would question. You know, decisions that were being made, you know, and little decisions, you know, like what, what, what highway are we taking? Why are we taking that highway? We should be taking this highway. I was a bit of a goof. And, um, and that kind of spilled over into, into, you know, tensions. And there was, like I say, Downchild was a different animal back then. There was, there were other things happening within the members that were frustrating or, uh, and, and, and like I say, I was a goof. So. Uh, so eventually, so so you know that you were a goof. I didn't know that. Oh, okay, at one point after was it right after you you got kicked out that you no. realized or no, how does no. one come to terms with I'm a goof? You uh, you you lead your own band. You, you you lead you lead your own band, and then you start dealing with goofs, and you start realizing, oh man, that was me, you know, uh, and and you know guys who are irresponsible or guys who are just you know, or, or drunk or guys who are, you know, just, you know, argumentative and stuff like that. And you go like, just shut up and play your instrument. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I should have been doing. And I realized that after I had led my own, uh, been in charge of bands um, at, at big levels and had to deal with guys who were basically like I was in Downchild. And so that was, that's why going back in this time, I, I kind of know my place, you know, and I know where, you know how to be a band member better than I did 20 years ago. Okay, so I don't know if it happened with a phone call, but how does it happen that they call you and say, "Hey, we want you to come back in the band?" Um, well, it was all during during COVID, and uh, so there's there's a lot of things in flux. Uh, of course, Michael had passed away, uh, Michael Fonfera, um, so that was all you know very difficult and. Uh, um, and and there was no work. I mean, the band was put on as everybody was. Everybody was put on hold for a year and a half. And during that year and a half, um, and I and I kept playing with with Gary all the time. We have the Mighty Duck band, right. and uh, and I would still occasionally play with Chuck and and Pat, and we'd see all these guys. And so we always had had uh, we always you know we, we got along again eventually. You know everything was good. Um, but during that year and a half. Uh, Mike Fitzpatrick, who was the drummer who, he wasn't the immediate drummer right after me. I think there was a, a couple of guys who came in for a brief period of time, but Michael had been there for the past 20 years. And, um, and Michael, dis- Michael had some, a, a couple of health issues that, um, the first thing that happened, he had a, he had a, um, uh, a health issue, which was, we prevented him from doing one show and Downchild had a show in, um, in Belleville and it was a pay-per-view uh, a show. This is during during COVID, during uh, the the height of all the lockdowns and stuff, and uh, and Michael was basically told by his doctors, "You need to take off three months and not do any playing." Uh, 
So I was doing some work for him with Chuck's band and, and the downshell gate came up and the guy said, you know, do you want to do that? Can you do this show? And I was like, that would be kind of nice to go back after 20 years and kind of make amends and play well and be, and be a better band member and, and do that. So I went and did the one show and it was a one-off. It was fun. It was great. Donnie's biggest compliment is that, yeah, I never even thought that it wasn't Fitz back there. So, uh, it, it was, it was good. Um, but it was one, it was just one shot. And, and is, then, is it awkward at all? No, because, because, uh, because I'd still had, had long uh, relationships with everybody. Um, right. okay. I mean, really the only guy I probably hadn't seen much is, would be, have been Donnie and Donnie was fine. Everybody was, everybody was fine. So I, it, no, it wasn't awkward. It was, it was fun. It was, it was a nice challenge to go in and cause there's a lot of material I didn't know cause it was new in the last 20 years, like maybe two songs. No, more than two songs, but, uh, uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, so it wasn't awkward at all. And, uh, so, but there was still, there was no gigs after that. And, and Mike Fitzpatrick decided that it was time for him to, to hang it up. And he, he just said, you know, I don't think I want to, I don't, I don't, he didn't want to play anymore. And, um, so when Mike made that decision, um, the guys got together and mine was the first name that came up and Gary calls me and offers it to me. And I kind of thought for a minute or two and I said, yeah, I think, I think we could do that. I think that would be, uh, that would be fun. When you sit on your drum stool back playing with that band, how, how different is it from 20 years ago or is it different at all? Well, first of all, the gigs are much better. Uh, I mean, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I mean, the band was, was, was doing some really neat gigs, but the band was doing a lot of bar gigs and, and was working a lot. Like maybe they were doing 65 to 75 shows a year. Um, now the band, it's always theater shows or festival shows. Uh, and there's maybe 20, 25 shows a year. So, um, so, so that's nicer. You're always in a great gig situation. You're not crammed in the corner uh, of some crappy bar and, you know, beer getting spilled all over you and stuff like that. So, so that aspect is, is better. But as far as you know, what's it, what's it like, what's different? Um, I don't know. Chuck's butt still looks, you know, pretty much, you know, I, I'm staring at Chuck's <laughs> butt for the whole time. So, uh, it, it, on stage, on stage, it's still on stage. It's 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 a better thing now. Uh, there, there's it's a much more positive uh, feeling in the band than it was uh, 20 years ago for various reasons. But uh, now there's a, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of empathy in the band. There's a lot of uh, a lot of we're here and we're still doing it sort of thing, and uh, and people are still enjoying what we're doing. So that's that's maybe the biggest difference. Okay, so you went to school partly for composition, and I know that you're working on a film score. Um, mm-hmm. But how actively are you composing these days? Well, I mean, about ten years ago, I started playing around with with uh, some with with writing some more stuff because I mean, I wrote all through college, but you really have to have a vehicle that you're going to write for to make that muscle work. And, um, 
and I didn't really have that. I mean, I had I wrote a few things with Chuck's band. I wrote a few things uh, that were you know kind of aimed at Downchild that never ended up getting you know uh, used at Downchild. And uh, so I wasn't writing that much. But about ten years ago, I started. Basically, what happens is technology um, caught up to my budget, and uh, I, I got to uh, I bought a, a, an iMac and it had GarageBand, and I started playing around. And I had a few ideas that I'd always kind of had kicking around, and uh, uh, and so that uh, eventually became the first Dark Orchard album, which. Uh, and the whole premise of Dark Orchard was to create a new genre of music that uh, was different than anything else out there, and consequently uh, unmarketable, apparently. But uh, <laughs> the uh, um, uh, it uh, uh, but that was that was where that started happening. And and once those tools got to, to my uh, got got into my hands, and the um, uh, the ability to to put out a record became feasible as opposed to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you needed, you know, $30,000 in a studio and all sorts of stuff. Now we can do it on our computers and uh, and, and you can release it on, on your computer and you can, everything is, you know, you can make a record for, you know, I just made one cost me 2000 bucks and it's out. Um, okay, so is this the Davis Hall and the Green Lantern? Yes, that's I mean that's 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 the latest uh, incarnation of that, and and the idea with that was it, it's kind of I've always wanted to take the Dark Orchard uh, idea, which was this sort of experimental, utilizing some spoken word, utilizing different sounds, and mix it with the blues, and uh, and, and try to figure out an angle to do it. And this this kind of came together. It just kind of happened over over COVID, where it's, we started playing around with some ideas of stuff, and I said, "Hey, this might be this might be that vehicle for those two things to go together." And uh, I, I think I, so far, I mean, it's just been out for a week now. So, um, but so far, there's there people are 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 receptive to it. And this concept adds a bit of New Orleans to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the the idea was what would happen if Dark Orchard and the Blues got together in Nor- New Orleans and watched Twin Peaks with Daniel Lanois. <laughs> the, Who's so, Davis Hall? Davis Hall. Well, I'll preface it by saying the idea was I, I decided I wanted to kind of pay tribute to Niagara, to my area of Niagara. And Davis Hall was the name of the community center uh, that I went to nursery school to, nur- nurse school at when I was, you know, four years old and I played floor <laughs> hockey at when I was, you know, a kid. So that was Davis Hall. It was just the community center. And the Green Lantern was the local uh, soda shop, burger shop uh, down the street from me when I was a kid. And I used to go buy, you know, hockey cards there. And it was the, the convenience store confectionery. And so when I started thinking about putting a, you know, this, basing this on, on kind of the history of Niagara, as far at least as far as titles go, um, and I was researching different names of things, and and I suddenly thought, oh, Davis Hall could be a person. Davis Hall, that sounds like a person's name. So Davis Hall and the Green Lanterns. Oh, oh, I think I got something there. And so all the local people laugh hysterically when they see this. They go like, Davis Hall, the Green Lantern. That's hilarious. That's great because they get it. They understand the joke. Right. You know, people from outside of Niagara, outside of you know my little village don't you know don't understand the joke you have to explain it to them but uh 
So that that's where that came from. Okay, so you've been busy during COVID. Um, about a month ago, you started gigging for the first time in probably, what, 18 months or something. Mm. What was that like? Um, well, I mean, I, we had a, a brief period of time last fall where we were able to do some shows, mostly outside, uh, um, uh, a couple of things with the Mighty Ducks uh, inside. So uh, it hadn't quite been 18 months. Like I said, we had that, that, that brief window of about three months where we actually did you know, some stuff. Uh, but then shut down from December to, oh man, what was it? June, I guess. And the first gig back uh, for me was the first gig with Downchild um, as, a, as a, a rejoined member. And that was out at uh, 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 Sherbrooke, Quebec. And uh, so not only did you know, it starts off with a nice you know, nine-hour drive to Quebec, but uh, uh, you got to go do this gig. But, but the thing for me that was um, was getting getting back into playing shape because um, I've been doing you know, recording stuff here in the studio. But when you play that, you, you play for three, four, five minutes, and then you stop and you listen to the take and you make some corrections and then you go, you're done. It wasn't playing a 90-minute show. Uh, and so I started practicing for it and I started, the first song was a, you know, pretty fast shuffle with Downchild and I'm, I'm practicing along with the headphones and uh, about halfway through the song, I went, Ooh, that guy, I kind of feel that in my arm. That's soon. I gotta, (laughs) so I, I, I had to kind of work up, you know, the endurance and, and even in rehearsals, um, I was feeling a bit of that, but as soon as we got on the stage, it all seemed to go away. Uh, everything seemed to suddenly click, and it was like the energy was there, the the, the strength was there, the, the the everything was good. So, from from my standpoint, that it, getting back on the stage was was really uh, the, the solid part. Uh, it, that made it work again. Because I, I I don't know how you know when you when you've built up the stamina to a point of supporting a ninety minute show. If you're practicing on your yeah. own, yeah. You, you, well, you, well, you do like a 90 minute. You, 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 I put the songs on an iPod and put them in order and uh, play the set and uh, try to figure out if I can, you know, get all the way through it. And so that was where the first times where I noticed that I was having some some difficulty at the beginning. But it really, I mean, after about you know a couple of days of doing that, it was it was really starting to come back. And like I say, when we got to the show, it was. It, it it didn't feel like anything. It just suddenly felt like okay, we're back here. Here we are again. And is that how you feel now? Because I know you were just away in North Bay or mm-hmm. somewhere, and you've done a bunch of gigs recently with a bunch of different bands. Mm-hmm. So it must be different for every band. Uh, not really. I mean, it's just you might be playing different music, different styles of music. Uh, but I'm not playing like Swedish death metal or anything like that. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about you know having you know my. Uh, my marathon, you know, sprinter, uh, uh, chops, you know, together. I, 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 my goal is normally to be as relaxed as possible when I play and use the least amount of possible energy, uh, cause I'm inherently lazy. So, uh, uh, so, and that's another, that's a big part of, you know, as the older you get, you got to learn how to play, uh, play, you know, more, more efficiently. And, uh, um, but still play with enough energy, uh, and to execute the parts and to be entertaining as well. So, uh, um, but yeah, I didn't, 
it was uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a big leap, and, and it's not much different now. Now now it feels like pretty much you know we're we're back in action. I've got two shows this weekend, and I haven't actually given it a second thought. So, um, you mentioned goals. Do you have goals at this point in your life? Well, I mean, I'm 57. If I haven't reached them yet, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, just keep going. I like, I, I, well, I mean this new album, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you do have goals because you want to get better. You just always want to get better at what you're doing. And so this new album, uh, I, I, I put myself in a position where I, I did more, um, tactical stuff uh as far as mixing and the recording and and the editing than I had on the previous albums this is the first full band full album that I decided I was going to allow myself to be the guy to mix it instead of hiring somebody who really does it as a job and so that was you know you, you constantly have the the fear of of failure for that and and just you know the imposter syndrome like oh I don't know if I'm doing this right and you start comparing it to everything so you listen to it like crazy, but that was so, so. If there's a goal, it's yeah, it's definitely to 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 just keep improving. You know, to keep improving my 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 playing, keep improving uh, my composing, uh, my my understanding of production, um, my understanding of how to run shows. It's a it's a constant evolution. I don't know that there are as much goals as just constantly just trying to get better. My my rule is if I don't if I if I do a gig and I don't learn something, I've done it wrong. Interesting. And can you pinpoint to what you've learned right after the gig every time? Sometimes, sometimes, uh, and and sometimes it's as simple as you know, like uh, uh, you know, don't look at that pretty girl, you know, when you're playing, you know, or, or you know, don't uh, don't don't you know, don't don't forget to bring your bottle of water on stage, or uh, uh, you know, uh, or, or, or or get a new pair of sticks when if you if you think you need a new pair of sticks. Get a new pair of sticks. Sim- something simple. It's not necessarily a big, you know, grand uh, 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 aha moment. It's sometimes it's, you know, don't lock your keys in the car. You know, uh, so. <laughs> What's your relationship with other drummers like? Uh, generally great. Um, I can probably count on one hand uh, the amount of drummers I've had troubles with, and I could still hold a stick. Um, uh, so, uh, it, it, drummers are a great, a great group because you just, we like to share, you know, we like to share it. We like to support everybody. We, we, it, it's a really good community. Um, is there a lot of competition between drummers? There, there, there is, I mean, cause sometimes you, you know, like, you know, like, oh man, I wish I had that gig that he's got. That's a really cool gig, you know? So, so there's a little bit of that. But not too much because there's a lot of uh, there, yeah there's a lot of sharing and especially like in the Toronto scene, there it, 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 different than some other scenes where you had guys who were going up the ladder briefly and then coming back in. So like you had you know you had your bar gigs, your daily, your weekly, constant breadwinning gigs, and then you got a tour with somebody and you're gone for three months. Okay, great. So you need a sub for those gigs, but you got to come back and 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 go back to that bar and and play those bar gigs because that's kind of where things are at. That's what. Uh, um, so there's a lot of up and down, 
a lot of sharing. And, and if you, uh, that's one of the things that worked really well for me is I became really good at jumping into a band and making it sound like I was in the band. Um, I, I ended up with a pretty extensive repertoire in my head and uh, could kind of fake my way through a lot of situations. Um, so I, be, I became a guy who was getting a lot of those calls to, to fill in uh, to, uh, to those guys who were you know, jumping up and doing a tour with, with somebody. And, uh, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of sharing. And we had, a last summer, not last summer, the summer before, uh, we had a, a, a drum hang at a, at a friend's place up, uh, um, near Orangeville. And it was probably about six or seven of us, uh, got together at this guy's place. Um, and there were no drums allowed. Nobody could, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't play drums. We, we drank, we ate, we smoked cigars, we regaled stories, uh, of, 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 uh, of, you know, great shows or bad shows, but the bad shows were actually way more fun than great shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, slagged bass players and, uh, and, and it was just, we kind of hung, just hung out and it was, it was great. I mean, we, we, you know, slept over that night and the tents and got up next morning, had breakfast and continued and then went our separate ways. And it was, and we, we desperately wanted to re- re- repeat it this year, but we, we didn't manage to get it done again this year. But, uh, um, but yeah, the drum community is, 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 is very, a very warm, uh, group of guys. Um, all right, I'm going to wrap this up, but let me ask you this. What's, what's the greatest thing you learned from music? Wow. What's the greatest thing I learned from music? Um, It makes my wife happy. Music, my, my wife can dance. And when she's dancing, she's happiest. And when I'm playing, she dances. And when she's happy, I'm happy. So, I mean, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, maybe that's a goofy answer, but it's, but, but I mean, in, 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 in the grand scheme of things, it's about, it's about, you know, being happy uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the life, at the end of the, at the end of this, this journey. If, if, were you happy? Yes. Good. Were you happy? No. Start again. You know, uh, so if, if you can end up being happy with what you're doing, uh, yeah, maybe the greatest thing I learned is how lucky I am to be able to do this. I think that's probably when you, uh, another, another answer too. And the fact that your wife has been dancing for 25 years. She's, she, well, she's been dancing longer. 28 long, even. She's been dancing longer than that, but she's been dancing to me for about 28 years. So, uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking oh, the th- time. Thank you for having me. I'm a, it's an honor to be, uh, be included in this prestigious list of, uh, of your interviews. Uh, I'm not sure if it's prestigious, but I really do appreciate it, and, and you certainly, you certainly um, belong to that list. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, and, and, uh, and it was a, a good conversation. Thank you. Thank you.